You're listening to Scaling Up Services, where we speak with entrepreneurs, authors, business experts, and thought leaders to give you the knowledge and insights you need to scale your service-based business faster and easier. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeld. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash Thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash Thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Scaling Up Services. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Dr. Chloe Carmichael. She is a psychologist, someone I know through the Entrepreneurs Organization. And I'm excited to talk to her about the work that she's doing with leaders, with high-performance individuals. She's an author. She's also a TV expert. I'm sure some of you have seen her on various networks that she's appeared on to really help talk about the issues with leadership, the issues with high performance, and some of the things that go with it. And, and one of the main things, and it's the subject of her new book, Nervous Energy, and we're going to talk about kind of this, the double-edged sword of stress and anxiety. Uh, you know, on one hand, it has some downsides. On the other hand, it's quite a, it's a tool. It's a powerful tool for folks. And so we really want to dig into what this is, how people become more aware of what they do with it, and really understand the work she's doing. So with that, Chloe, welcome to the program. Thanks, Bruce. It's great to be with you and your audience today. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. So before we kind of dig into the book and, and what you've been doing recently, give us a little bit of backstory. You know, clinical psychologist, entrepreneur, tell us the journey that you've been on and then we can dig into the topics. Sure. So I actually started off as a yoga teacher before I was a psychologist. And I was a yoga teacher doing private individual lessons with a bunch of really stressed out New Yorkers. (laughs) And, you know, they really wanted yoga to do more than just, you know, get their body into shape. They were doing individual lessons, I found, because they really wanted to just optimize themselves on a deeper level. And I was so into that and designing, you know, special yoga and meditation programs help them do that. And I started to get so into it and more into the mental part. And they were really into that too. And that was what prompted me to go get a PhD in clinical psychology. And then after I got the PhD and I started my own office, just as soon as I had the license to do it, I didn't even think I would be, you know, filling up my own chair. I was just more nervous of how I could stay in business. Uh And to my surprise and excitement, I started booking more clients than I could even personally handle. I had to hire other therapists. And next thing I knew, it was honestly almost like one of those flukes. I don't understand still. Well, I kind of do understand, actually, I can tell you. (laughs) But um, a VH1 had a show called Love and Hip Hop and a rap star, you know, this is the part where I say I kind of do understand it because he told me privately that he just found me attractive and that that was why he decided to call. But anyway, Uh so on the show, they said that, you know, they wanted they thought it would be a kind of a cool angle if he, you know, talked to a therapist. And so uh-huh. they told him, you know, call a therapist. And so he called me 
And I was ready for the camera and, you know, just really made it an easy experience for the network. And that, I think, is why then they call it breaking the TV barrier. So after that, I started getting calls from Inside Edition and ABC Nightline and all kinds of other really great places. And that certainly helped to build the business. And then it came to the point eventually about the book kind of bringing us into the present day where a couple years ago, a friend of mine was like, oh, Chloe, it's so great that your business is doing so well. But just so you know, if you don't write a book by the time you're 40, you're really not going to be relevant. <laughs> and I was nice. like, oh, no. Wait, 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 this God, was like quote unquote friend? <laughs> yeah. Well, to be honest, though, she's a great friend. Like, yeah. um, I love her. She tells me just like it is. And uh-huh. like, that's that's what I need, you know. And she knows that I'm a competitive person. And she knew that I was really enjoying, yep. you know, having this successful practice. And so I really appreciated her actually telling me, like, what the next push. move I should make if I really wanted to stay on top. So I said, okay, sure. So, you know, what should the book be about? And she said, well, obviously are pretty good at teaching people how to deal with their anxiety and everything. Like, why don't you write a book about that? And so I was like, oh, of course. And then the book was actually very easy to write, Nervous Energy, Harness the Power of Your Anxiety. I just wrote like nine of my favorite tips and some stories of how they work with clients and shared some stories of how I use the techniques on myself as well. And then um, next thing you know, I was just sitting at a restaurant bar with my laptop, as I love to do, and happened to be sitting next to somebody that was a book agent. And next thing you know, I had a book deal. It was amazing. Yeah, it was one of those things. I just love New York. Yeah. Well, and I love your story because I think there's two things that are really interesting. One is just taking advantage of opportunities, right? Like I think half of success is just being ready for things to come at you and then take advantage of what comes at you and and be willing to kind of engage in it. Because I think a lot, a lot of times people kind of push and push around a particular path when they have other opportunities. They're just, they're not willing to just go with something that comes comes to them and then just letting letting things unfold, right? Like just being willing to engage in the work and not being overly focused on a particular goal or overly focused on a particular vision of the future, but rather, you know, a general intention, a general idea of where you want to go and then let life kind of figure out where where the opportunities present and then take advantage of those things. So so you've got this book now. Let's kind of define, you know, anxiety, stress, nervous energy. What are we really talking about here? What is this topic and and how do you define it or how do you kind of categorize it? Yeah, I mean, it's such an interesting thing, right? Because if we think of stress as, you know, something that happens when we're reaching the outer limits of what we can easily support, that's actually a challenge, right? Huh? And that's when we do our growth. And so for high-functioning people, which is my area of specialization as a psychologist, and it's really just a fancy clinical word for people that are able to meet their own basic needs in terms of, you know, food, clothing, and shelter, and keeping on a couple of good relationships and things. And just as a little caveat, obviously, that's sensitive to culture. So if you're in a situation where there's, you know, no food available and you're in a famine, psychologists would not say, oh, well, his functioning is low because he's not providing his own, you know, <laughs> yeah. so it's it's just a rough, rough measure. But uh-huh. anyway, I specialize in people that are able to do things like set an alarm clock and be somewhere on time, that kind of stuff. They've got it licked. They just need some help with some of that 
higher level, you know, functioning. And Mm -hmm. so I did tend to find that those types of people do get stressed out, right? Because by definition, once they get comfortable with something, they want to add in something else. They want to go to the next level. They want to try something else. And so the experience of stress in itself is somewhat normal. And then I also found that a lot of the people coming to me had a lot of anxiety, but they would always talk about it with kind of a sense of an endearing attachment. They'd be like, I'm a little OCD. And they would say it almost (laughs) like the way way some women who are neurotic about their weight, they'd be like, I'm a little too skinny. But it's Uh, like almost like they, it's like a problem that maybe like they kind of secretly are attached to or something like mm -hmm. that. And so I found that before these people would really let me give them tools to deal with their anxiety and before they would really be willing to try them, I would first have to assure them that I completely understood that part of their edge in life was the fact that they are a little OCD, Uh that they have a little bit of a perfectionist streak, or that they will have a, quote, panic attack if things don't go just as planned, that they were afraid on a certain level that they didn't want to get sloppy or complacent or lose that sense of conscientiousness that was partly what was driving this, you know, anxiety. So I found that it was really important to assure them that I got that part first. And that's how the... Yeah, I was just going to say, so I think it is, it's just resonating for me, both with a lot of the leaders I work with uh, as a strategic coach, but also my own personal experience. I found that if things got too settled and working too well, I would start creating problems <laughs> because, you know, that's my, like my essence, my, my kind of ego is, is tied up in a, being a problem solver. And if I don't have big problems to solve, I'll start creating problems because I, because <laughs> that's what I want to do. And I see that so many times is like, if I don't have, and if the, you know, these high performance people don't have something to kind of sink their teeth into and really kind of grapple with and worry about, like it starts to make them unsettled. And so I think that's a really interesting dynamic there with the, yes, on one hand, you know, I want to kind of quote unquote, reduce my stress or reduce anxiety on the other hand, but not too much. Right. And so what I found was really helpful for them, you know, was these techniques in the book that would help them to just manage that extra boost of energy. That's really what anxiety is, is it's a little zing from mother nature that gives us a little extra dose of adrenaline. Our physical vision even actually tends to get a little bit sharper when we're under that go time pressure. And so the trick is really to learn how to manage and use that energy productively and then also learning how to turn that energy off when, you know, the presentation is over, so to speak, or, you know, the the relationship that whatever it is that was on your mind where it actually was behooving you to put all of that extra energy in, then there also comes a time when, you know, you're kind of just yeah. putting energy back in there out of just an old cognitive habit and it doesn't even need to be there. It's not serving you anymore. So by teaching people how they could operate this energy rather than just, quote, get rid of their anxiety, that's Mm -hmm. what I was doing with people that I realized was special and different. And so that's what I put into the book. 
Yeah. So let's talk about some of the elements of the book. What are some of the tips or what are some of the things you cover? Give us some details. Sure. So, I mean, one of the things I'll cover and share with you right now that I'm super excited about, um, it's not exactly a tip, but I did just get an endorsement from Deepak Chopra, which was super awesome. Yeah. And so one of the, a couple of the tips that I just think tend to resonate with high functioning people, one of them is the to-do list with emotions. Because we all have a to-do list, especially high performing people. We all love our to-do lists. But what I hear a lot of from people sometimes is that they reach a point where they feel just like a hamster on a wheel. Like they're just doing all these tasks, but they've lost touch with the why. Or, you know, they're they suddenly find themselves just procrastinating and it's unlike them. And they have a list, but they're just not into it. And so when I discover that with people, we go to the to-do list with emotions. And so what we do then is we look at the list of to-dos and then you ask yourself, what is the first emotion that comes for me? when I look at such and such item on my list. And the emotion can often be surprising. And it's oftentimes challenging or negative, right? Because people don't tend to do the to-do list with emotions if they're already feeling totally in sync and in flow and everything is going mm-hmm. great. So like, for example, I had a, a newly divorced dad look at the item of going grocery shopping and he was like, I feel shame because he was struggling wow, to just get this done. And when we explored why, it turned out that his ex-wife used to do the grocery sure. shopping. And so him going grocery shopping by himself, he basically felt like a failure and he was struck yeah. by feelings of loneliness because he the divorce wasn't his idea. Yeah. So although it wasn't pleasant to get in touch with the shame, what it did empower him to do then is to do self-care. So he was able to start planning a good cell phone call with a supportive friend during his grocery shopping. And then he was able to convert that restless feeling of shame into something constructive, which was a stimulus and a signal that he needed to get himself some more social support. So again, it's an interesting thing with high-functioning people. We are often so good at putting our emotions aside, which is a gift as well. We don't want to be like just stuck and wallowing in emotions all the time, but we can almost get too good at it to the point where we lose touch with what the emotions are. And then we can get bottlenecked if we're not giving ourselves self-care or even just capitalizing on the joy and the energy that certain emotions can bring. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a difference between being aware of an emotion and strategically you know, deciding I'm not going to focus on it or I'm, I'm going to put, put it aside and complete my task and I'll come back to it versus just ignoring emotions, right? Because I think ignoring emotions, that is where you get into this problem of, you know, I don't understand, you know, why this is not working or why I'm behaving this way. Well, because you haven't really got into what is the underlying emotional you know, charge here that, that is going on. And yeah, we don't want to let it drive our decision-making all the time, but ignoring it can often, oftentimes not be super effective. Definitely. To me, it's like the difference between saying like, okay, I'm in a cash flow problem, but I'm going to strategically and intentionally choose to make an investment and, and buy some things I need for my business, you know, versus just not being aware of your finances, just not even opening your credit card bills <laughs> and just operating as if you just aren't even aware of it. Like to yeah. me, that's what I like think about when I think about emotional awareness is we just, we need to at least know when we're putting things on the shelf because it's okay to do that, but we do need to make sure we process them or else we just sandbag ourselves. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So give us another tip or another thing that you've covered in the book. Sure. Another one I really like is called, I call it the mental shortlist. So 
one of the things that very high functioning people tend to have is a tenacious mind, right? Like we can be like a dog with a bone once we get something in our minds and we don't want to let go of it. And that can be a blessing or a curse. So one of the examples I discuss in the book is actually sometimes of a woman that went through a breakup and we've all been there, right? Like up to a certain point, it actually makes sense to focus on the relationship and think about it and see if we can make it better or whatever else. But when the relationship is over, we just need to stop thinking about it at a certain point. But we can't if it's that dog with the bone feeling. It's like our mind will not let it go. Similarly, in the book, I talk about an example of a man that was trying to do a pitch to some investors, and he couldn't stop thinking about it to the point where he was was overdoing it. Analysis paralysis, right? We've Uh all been there. So what you do with the mental shortlist is once you realize that you've got a mental shortlist problem that your mind is tracking onto the same dog with a bone over and over again to the point of your own detriment, is you come up with five really good juicy mental topics that you can focus on instead. And it can be anything from like making a jumpstart on your holiday shopping list to learning what new restaurants have opened in your area, deciding you're going to try them out, or like a list of friends and family that you keep meaning to call but never think of. The idea is that you need to have five good topics, can be work, personal, whatever, even a variety is good. But five topics literally written down so that way when your mind wants to auto-track onto the old topic, instead of just saying, don't think about pink elephants, basically, (laughs) then you have five really good topics to think about instead. And it sounds so simple, right? When we're sitting here in our rational mind to come up with five topics that would be interesting and better to think about. But I compare it to like when you get a food craving, like suppose the Oreo monster strikes, and then all you can think about is Oreos. It is so hard to go get something healthy or even think of something healthy unless you have a fridge full of really healthy pre-cut snacks. Same thing is true for the mental shortlist. Having five really good topics written down that you can just go to will help you so much when there's something that you need to just leave behind. Well, I like that because you know a lot of it is about availability, right? Like the challenge around those things is if you haven't made it super available for you to start thinking about, it just doesn't work, right? Like if you try to come up with the five, when you notice you're thinking about that thing you don't want to think about anymore, that's not good, right? Like have, mm-hmm. literally having them written out, having them you know posted at multiple spots around your your workspace or or you know on your cell phone, maybe it's the screen of your cell phone or something. Just make it super available so that you can say, all right, I need to go to that list. I need to start going through those five things. I like that idea. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. In uh, meditation circles, we have a little saying, which is that you don't want to learn how to build a teepee during a thunderstorm. You want (laughs) to practice it in calm weather so that way when the thunderstorm arises, you just autopilot and know how to put up that teepee. So it's kind of a similar thing of doing some of these little pieces of legwork makes your life so much easier when things get hectic. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Yeah, that whole um, making it automatic or you know ingrained behavior rather mm-hmm. than you know trying to learn it when the when the pressure's on certainly certainly a challenge probably a lesson in a lot of things in life. 
Definitely. Yeah. So what else? What else do you cover in the book? Well, I mean, I share about a lot of things. You know, metacognition is another one that I think is really interesting that I found high functioning people tend to love. So really mindfulness, which many of us have heard of, but maybe don't understand, or it sounds kind of like a little bit of a new age woo woo type of a phrase. Um, I unpack it really through the lens of psychology, because now the Harvard Medical School is doing this, the Johns Hopkins is doing this. All of the major medical schools are now into mindfulness because it does not only help people to feel less stressed out, but it also helps people to be more productive. So it's a win-win. And what I really look at it as is metacognition, which is the process of thinking about your thoughts. And the first technique in the book is actually geared specifically on that. And the reason why is because how can you choose the best anxiety management technique if you don't really understand what's going on in your mind that's making you anxious. For example, what if you're anxious because you're all keyed up from a meeting that's over and all you need to do now is find a good anxiety management technique that will help you learn how to slow your brain the F down, right? Like you just (laughs) want to like slow down. Uh But on the other hand, what if you're anxious because you're about to go into a big meeting and you actually need to focus your mind the F up, right? Like you would need to be using a different anxiety management technique. In both cases, there would be techniques in the book that would be helpful to you, but it's going to be different depending on do you need a speed up? Do you need a slow down? Do you need a zoom in? Do you need a zoom out? And that first, you know, mindfulness technique is what that's for. And it's actually also one that I share in the book. I had a panic attack on national television once. I like mispronounced uh-huh. a word. It was the most embarrassing. I mean, honestly, mispronouncing a word shouldn't be that embarrassing. <laughs> but but what was embarrassing is that like I got all nervous about it and like yeah. I did a weird like even like I winked my eye in a funny way. (laughs) It was ridiculous. And I was on national TV and it was so embarrassing. But then you actually see me do the technique. Like the technique is a breathing. It's a kind of a combination of breath and mental. And Uh so in the clip, I actually think I may post it one day. You actually see me doing this like little quick half a second breathing technique. And then I like come back to life and I'm totally normal. So I share a lot in the book. That's one of the things I really enjoyed is that it's more than just a cookbook of anxiety techniques. It's Mm -hmm. also a lot of what I think are kind of funny and personal and interesting stories, not only about myself, but I also got to share about clients. And obviously I anonymous the stories because as a clinical psychologist, everything yep. is you know very confidential. But um, I am so privileged that I get to work with truly yeah. like just the creme de la creme. And Bruce, I know that you're a performance coach. I'm sure you have the same thing where, oh, yeah. I mean, we work with people whose minds I am so privileged just to be a fly on the wall of their mind and uh-huh. just learn and watch how they work. And then from the sidelines, I offer like a few like things where they're like, I'm almost like a pinch hitter. Like, I'm like, oh, I can help you with this little department in your life of anxiety, but you have to like, show me the whole house, show me the whole tour, show me your whole mind. 
and then I can show you where I can be helpful. And I am helpful. But then in the process, I just get to learn so much about how such intelligent, driven, creative, awesome people think and work and run their lives. And I was able to share some of that in the book. And to me, that was, it was such a privilege to be able to share. Yeah, no, it really is. And yeah, I, it's probably the favorite part of my job, right? It's just being able to really go deep with, with some of these leaders who are, who have yeah, incredible minds, have done incredible things. And I make it this kind of analogy to sports coaching and you know, a really good sports coach will sit there and just watch, just watch you like hit a golf club again and again and again. And then they'll come in and they'll say, I, you know, I just want you to think about just turning the face just a little sooner. And then they'll just sit there and watch you, you know, hit the golf club and, and everything changes, right? And it's this ability to just kind of see everything going on and finding the one little suggestion, this one little observation to be able to make and how that's going to change the whole system. And I, I think a lot of times, I think as I've developed as a coach and as I've watched really, really good coaches do their work, the best coaches I find make smaller and smaller suggestions. <laughs> like early in coaching, I would come and say, okay, here's the list. And I you know, give them 10 things that I think they should focus on. And then it was just a cluster because they were just, it was too, it's too much input, too many things to try to change at once. And so that whole idea of being able to observe and then make that you know, small targeted focused suggestions, changes, even just observations sometimes will, will shift the behavior. Yeah, it's a fascinating know, process. I remember in graduate school, I actually had a similar predisposition where I really felt the need to prove my value. Yeah, exactly. And I, I wanted to, you know, make sure that everybody knew that I knew like what I was talking about because mm-hmm. I wasn't even trying to be dominant in the in the room or take up space. It was more just like I felt like I needed to earn my space. I needed to sing for my supper. Like I needed to make sure that I was bringing value. And my my supervisor would listen to my sessions because in graduate school, we literally would record our sessions and then yeah. have them reviewed. And Amazing. yeah, and what he said to me, it was so helpful once. He said, Chloe, you just need to understand that listening is doing. Yeah. And I was like, oh, wow, that's interesting. So <laughs> I can actually just listen and I'm actually doing something. And I mean, at the same time, though, Bruce, I'm sure you get this all the time as well. I know you're obviously not a therapist, but I can't tell you how many times clients will come to me and they'll be like, you know, the previous person that they were working with, they're leaving them because that person would only listen yeah. or would only ask them like, and how do you feel about that? And, and I just, I would feel the same way. I find that oh, so yeah. annoying. And so... I, at least I was like, okay, I'm just going to put all of like many of my best tips, at least for anxiety in a book, and then nobody will ever have to worry about that again. And I've been so actually excited. In fact, even some therapists have been buying the book and some I'm clients sure. have been sharing that they've been going like who have gotten advanced copies. They've been actually going through the book with their therapist. So that's been exciting too. Yeah. Well, look, I, I think everyone's looking for you know, practical solutions to try and kind of experiment with. And, you know, it's part of the learning process, right? Like if I can, if I can try something and learn from that process and, and gain, you know, better understanding and better awareness, even if it doesn't work immediately, it's going to help me advance my thinking, advance my process so I can get to the next stage. I can, I can see why that's helpful. You mentioned something earlier too, which I thought was, was interesting. This, you were talking about your incident on national TV. Um, I think there's, at least I work with this, a lot of leaders on this is like, it's, if you're going to push, if you're going to, you know, push yourself and try to achieve big things, you have to be willing to accept failures. You're going to, you have to willing to accept that you're not always going to be perfect. Right. And that's going to be part of the process. How do you kind of 
categorize or how do you kind of think about this idea of, you know, is failure okay? Is there good failure? Is there bad failure? Kind of helping people with being comfortable with the fact that they're not always going to be perfect. They're, they're going to run into cases where something things are going to happen, but making sure that they're going to be learning opportunities and again, help advance them in their thinking versus ones that are going to be destructive and, and potentially set them back. Yeah, that's such a good question. I mean, so one of the things, of course, about high-functioning people is that we do tend to have very high standards for ourselves and we don't we're yeah. not, we don't like failure, right? And psychologists have done some interesting studies about the need for achievement. So um, in simple terms, we all have a need for achievement. Okay. Um, some of us have what's categorized just subject uh, as a low need for achievement. Some of us is a medium need for achievement and some is a high need for achievement. Interestingly enough, people with a high need for achievement actually don't tend to accomplish as sophisticated, complex goals as mm. people with a medium need. And that is because sometimes people with a high need for achievement can be so hard on themselves over mistakes that they don't allow themselves to grapple with new skills, which is a necessary part of actually building and learning sophisticated skills, right? So yeah. we have to socialize ourselves to actually learn that it's okay to get, it's okay to, to struggle sometimes. At the same time, Bruce, like you said, we don't want to just, you know, become complacent and be like, whatever, failure, yeah. I don't care, right? We, 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 we want to have like a certain amount of discomfort with it because that is what propels us to learn how to do better. So one of the ways in the book I discuss of how to solve that issue is that when you do find yourself aware of, of a shortcoming, and I discuss it in the book, even just in terms of realizing that you're not doing the techniques exactly the right way, because mm -hmm. it does take a little practice and learning to do the techniques. And so when you find yourself falling off, the thing to do is actually to congratulate yourself, to congratulate yourself on your awareness of the issue. And mm -hmm. that, Bruce, is how you find the sweet spot between wanting to make sure that you don't lose your willingness to notice mistakes, because that is important and it is constructive. And so you do want to congratulate yourself on noticing the mistake, but you also don't want to make it such an unpleasant experience, right, that you avoid the mistake or then yeah. don't learn how to resolve it. So you congratulate yourself and you say, well, that's great. The fact that I noticed this obviously means that I'm learning something about this, that I'm able to spot that this yeah. that this wasn't right and that I didn't, you know, that I've got more to learn. Now, how can I support myself better next time? How can I try this again better next time? And that's how we find that sweet spot between healthy awareness of mistakes without becoming so heavy-handed that we squash our motivation. Yeah. Is there anything you do about how to kind of reflect on the mistake or, or kind of learn from the mistake? to kind of tease apart, you know, the things that I can do something about in the future versus things that I can't and, and mm -hmm. how I could make better decisions. Like what, what's the process for actually sort of analyzing yeah. or, or dige so, digesting? Uh, there's a few things you can do. You know, one of the techniques in the book that would be helpful is called the zone of control. And so in that one, what we do is we think about all the factors of a situation and we tease them apart into the parts, you know, that we can control and we cannot control. So one of the examples I give in the book is somebody that was trying to go on a diet and then, you know, went to a friend birthday party, like after a busy work day and, you know, binged on cupcakes. And so in the zone of control, then she's thinking about things like, okay, well, I cannot control the fact that there's going to be late nights at work, mm -hmm. you know, but maybe I could control 
keeping a, an emergency snack in my bag so that I yeah. don't have the situation of being famished and then going to a, a birthday party, for example. So I think, Bruce, that you're really right on the money there with looking at mistakes in the in the realm of what we can control and what we cannot control and breaking it down into smaller components. I know it can get tedious, like if we stop and break down every mm-hmm. everything in our lives on that level. But the beauty of the techniques is that once we kind of just start thinking about things through that framework in general, our automatic thoughts will become more centered that way. And we, whatever amount of time that we used to spend just berating ourselves, if you have time for you know just a bunch of negative self-talk, the good news is then that you also have time and energy to just automatically think in terms of what parts can I control and how can I work on them? And then knowing that you're going to leave behind the parts that you cannot control because it's a waste of energy. Yeah. Chloe, this has been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, about the book, what's the best way to get that information? Thanks, Bruce. Super easy to remember. Here, check this out. Super easy. NervousEnergyBook.com. <laughs> there you go. I'll make sure that the links are in the show notes and yeah. on the webpage so people can get that information. They can Chloe, go to Amazon or anywhere books are sold, but NervousEnergyBook.com is the easiest too. Perfect. Chloe, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Thanks, Bruce. The pleasure's mine. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. Be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast app so you don't miss our future episodes. See you next time. You've been listening to Scaling Up Services with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at scalingupservices.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at scalingupservices.com slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.